but I would like to work towards getting some online resources associated with our um, laboratory for mostly for um, small animal veterinarians to refer to because I've talked to some where they're like, we can collect samples and we have patients, but we really, you have this whole library of tests and we're not sure what to pursue and what would be good and what, what would just be a waste of clients' money. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming soon. The brightest minds of the global poultry industry will be right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Adiseo, Protecta, DSM, and JVI. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show. I'm Karen Grogan, one of your hosts. And today I have Haley Quercia here as our guest today. Um, Haley has recently finished a poultry pathology training program at Auburn University. And she has uh, started a new position this summer at the Harrisonburg, Virginia um, Regional Animal Health Laboratory, right in the heart of the Shenandoah Valley. Um, a really uh, beautiful part of the Southeast. I used to travel there a lot myself. So Haley is joining us. Um, Haley, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, so we sometimes have students uh, that join these podcasts. Um, and why don't you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in poultry and then your track to landing a job as a diagnostician? Sure thing. Yeah, my journey is a little bit, I think, feel like different than most folks. I actually didn't decide to be a veterinarian until I took a gap year between high school and college. And prior to that, I had, I lived on a hobby farm. So we had chickens and I was very involved in their healthcare. I also bred and sold tropical fish. And oddly enough, that really got me interested in population medicine. And so um, after shadowing a mixed animal vet, I decided that, okay, there are fields of veterinary medicine that really interested me. Um, I didn't want to be a small animal vet, but the farm animal end of it really appealed to me. So that's um, that's what got me started, kind of later than most folks. And then I went to a community college and then followed that up with a four-year degree and then finished my DVM at Cornell University. And as you can tell, that's in Upper, upstate New York, not really a poultry stronghold, um, but I was lucky there to find a mentor, Dr. Zara Jang, who is really into poultry and is great working with students that she helped me get out and not only get experience with poultry companies, but also get into diagnostic labs because after our first gen path lab, I really, really enjoyed pathology. And so I took some summer classes doing biopsies and debated for a long time between dairy medicine just for the farm animal angle and because I, I still love dairy cows and then the, the poultry that I loved and the pathology and finally decided to focus on being um, an avian diagnostician and working in a diagnostic lab so I can mesh two of those passions together. And I knew coming from where I did, I really felt like I needed a lot more training than what I got in vet school and what I had before. And so 
kind of explored that out of vet school. I did spend some time at Mississippi State in their Pearl Laboratory, but ended up at Auburn University because they had a program that was supposed to be two to three years and really focused on um, diagnostic work and learning to read histopathology. And I went through that. It wasn't um, it wasn't a traditional pathology residency, so like I won't be able to be boarded with the veterinary pathology boards. But I am hoping to pursue poultry boards. But I spent most of my time training on the avian side of things, and I learned a lot. Had some great mentors there, and really really enjoyed that. And then ended up actually through. Some um, through Dr. Hare, who I would occasionally send cases to and be like, help me. I don't know what's going on. He, he He's told a me, good mentor to have, Fred Hare. So. Oh, yeah. Especially when things are really, you're not sure what's going on. He's like, oh, yeah, I saw that 10 years ago. It's XXX. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I ended up here. He actually put this one on my radar. Nice. Excellent. And um, so part of your um, your training there is uh, you developed a poster that was presented at our recent annual meeting of the American Association of Avian Pathologists, AAAP, which was just held in Philadelphia at the beginning of this month. And um, you had the uh, interesting poster on um, health challenges and small flocks. Um, and I'd, I'd love to just kind of go over the topics maybe that you covered in that poster so that our guests that couldn't make the meeting um, you know, what is the top health challenge uh, that you would see in small flocks that you would deal with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the poster, I was looking at two different time periods. Um, I was trying to see as things have changed. And so looking at 2019 and 2020, that batch of data, and then 2009 through 2010 and comparing those two. And the two top diagnoses that kept coming up in both time periods was uh, respiratory disease, usually a mixed bacterial infection. Um, a lot of the reports suggested that mycoplasma might be involved. And then neoplasia. And by far within that category, the top one was lympho lymphoma, likely due to Merrick's disease. Um, and then we um, did see some changes between the periods, like um, I think... We saw fewer issues with parasites as time went on, um, which was interesting. And we also saw that birds submitted to us at the laboratory tended to be older than what we had seen 10 years ago. Um, in terms of the parasite control, do you think that's due to improved grower education? Do you think there are more products on the market? Um, anything that you can conclude from those differences? Um, I let's. I'd like to say... Like inter I wanted to look at interventions as well. And it seemed like as time went on, using a dewormer was a really popular, um, became more popular. Unfortunately, it didn't always match up with what we saw. Like I would get a history of owner used electrolytes and a dewormer and it was Merrick's disease or something like that. So I think it is something that people are more aware of. I'm not sure I would say better educated on because it seems like something people reach for when the bird looks sick, regardless of whether they need it. And then in terms of um, health challenges in small fox, uh, Merrick's is always a, a hot a hot topic for small fox. Um, what, what 
recommendations, um, how can we improve Merrick's vaccination in those flocks? I think, first of all, really would be focusing on education. Like where I am here, there is currently a group that gets together, shares a lot of good knowledge, but there is a misconception in that group that, that by vaccinating your birds for Merrick's, you will give them Merrick's. So unfortunately, yeah. yeah. So I think we need to um, really as veterinarians kind of work on educating our clients that this is, in my opinion, one of the best things they can do for their birds since it's one of the leading causes of death I see. And it's it's preventable if people buy their birds from hatcheries and can have them vaccinated, especially with more and more people in more of an urban setting or getting chickens or in the suburbs, they're turning more to hatcheries so they can get smaller number of birds and they can be sure that they're only getting hens since sometimes they're in areas right. with that woman. Yeah. So in, since they're buying from hatcheries, there is the option to get that Merrick vaccine added on. For, for a backyard owner, in terms of Merrick's vaccination, um, you're, we know that you could get it from the hatchery. Can the owner, like, say if they hatch their own chicks, can they vaccinate their own chicks? They can. Um, there is, I believe, Valley Vet um, offers the HVT vaccine, which they can buy. Um, it's a pretty high dosage, and so it's a bit more expensive than you'd want to spend for just a couple chicks. But there are clients who choose to do that, that they will, when they're playing the hatch birds, they will have that vaccine ready and then vaccinate them once they hatch out. It does, of course, have a very short shelf life, so that adds to the issue. Right. And once once it's reconstituted, you have to, to use it at that, at that time point. So a lot of growers don't want to have to waste, but... You know, it, it's a fairly cheap insurance policy mm -hmm. because the vaccine's pretty effective at stopping clinical signs. The thing I see also on the talk about misinformation is um, they think that it will stop the birds from getting Merrick's, which that's, you know, that's not how a vaccination for Merrick's works. We're, we're trying to just prevent clinical signs. Um, so I think that there is still a lot of room for, for education. Um, what, in terms of the, the regional diagnostic lab there that you work at in Virginia, what, what services do you offer to, to backyard owners, um, in that area? Well, the state helps us subsidize, um, necropsies for backyard owners. So they are actually, they can bring in the bird and we, we will run anything we can run in-house that is necessary or that we think would be worthwhile. And that's all under that subsidized cost. And most often folks will bring in birds um, and we'll do bacterial testing, um, usually molecular testing look for, looking for mycoplasma. Um, we test every single bird for avian influenza, and then I will usually run histopathology. But um, even just after doing the gross exam, I'll call the owners that same day and usually have something to tell them, especially that might be useful for the birds they still have. That's, uh, that's a good service for the state. Mm -hmm. um, we get to sort of use those flocks as um, almost sentinels of knowing, you know, what's circulating. And I think other state labs offer similar in terms of, you know, at least the necropsy part is, is you know, covered uh, by the state. Do you have a, a education or outreach role and, and sort of uh, how does that work in, in your new position there? 
Yeah. So that's something I'm still exploring. Um, my boss said I can kind of tweak that and make it fit what I need. So I do a fair bit, like I'll field a lot of calls. Um, right now there's folks who think if their birds have merics, they have to depopulate the whole flock. So, yeah. So I've been getting a lot of calls from concerned owners and angry neighbors. And so that's been a fair bit of it, but I also, work with um, our veterinary services part of the department and going out to fairs and talking to people about avian influenza and helping with testing there. But I would like to work towards getting some online resources associated with our um, laboratory for mostly for um, small animal veterinarians to refer to. Because I've talked to some where they're like, we can collect samples and we have patients, but we really, you have this whole library of tests and we're not sure what to pursue and what would be good and what, what would just be a waste of clients money. Right. I, 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 we, we get similar inquiries here at, at UGA and it's clients come in and want a a test. Well, you know, we can run a test for barracks, but even a bird without clinical signs is probably going to be positive. So like diagnostics for some of the things that they want a diagnostic for, it's not a, we don't have the tests these, the, the client, that backyard clients want. I think we have great tests for, like you were talking about, like the mixed bacterial infections, like Coryza and MG. Um, you know, we can, we can detect those pretty easily. And they're like, as you showed in your poster, very common in these flocks. Um, a lot of those bacterial things, but, you know, we, I think you probably get, you get similar inquiries from our small animal colleagues of, oh, you know, I want to test this. And here's a book that says I can, you can do this t- test. So um, I think we also have uh, maybe some work on our diagnostic side. Um, so it, in terms of that, in terms of backyard flock medicine, where are some areas for improvement that you see? Well, I think it, I mean, even talking with small animal veterinarians, it's frustrating that there aren't a lot of therapeutics to reach for for what they're having problems with, which honestly is a lot of times neoplasia of Marix or adenocarcinoma. I think giving getting small animal veterinarians more resources so that they can have an idea how to approach these cases and make diagnoses. Um, just so that they know what they might be dealing with. Okay, this is, yes, I'm culturing, I'm seeing coccidia in, in the fecal that I ran, but the fact that this bird is bloated and has a water belly, it's more likely neoplasia with secondary parasites going on. Um, because I think, I sometimes feel like I'm just sitting in my house on the hill here. I'm like, I have the training, I have the books, but it's the small animal veterinarians who probably didn't get any training in school about chickens and they're having the cases come in and frantic clients and they're having to try and provide that service. So I do feel like that's something I want to work on. It's providing more support to them. Definitely. I think that our, our colleagues um, get field a lot of questions and I think a lot of times they can, they can answer them fairly well. Um, But there is just a lot of um, misconceptions within the, the backyard groups um, they're pretty well organized, though. They can disseminate information pretty quickly. Um, they have a lot of, you know, different groups. And um, so they uh, they definitely have a lot of access. Um, so maybe we can can all work together to try to 
improve their knowledge. In terms of um, your your current uh, role there in uh, in Virginia, how what's been the best part of your job so far? I know you've only been there a couple of months, but what are you enjoying so far? I I mean I love necropsies. I love histo, but I think with this job, I get to do a lot more like calling clients and talking to them. And I actually like that a lot. I mean, there are some days when, especially with tricky cases, it can be a, a bit much, but um, I feel like that's a bit more fulfilling instead of just seeing the dead birds and seeing the slides, actually calling folks and hopefully finding ways to help the remaining birds they have, or, or just being able to talk to them and learn more about the area I'm in is great. In terms of your caseload there, are you a majority commercial enterprises that are there um, in the Shenandoah Valley or small like backyard flocks or a mix of both? The majority of the poultry industry in the state of Virginia is here. So we have quite a lot of commercial operations here. Um, I mean, I would say necropsy wise, maybe it's like 60-40 like 40% small and 60% large. But as for our other labs and the other tests we get in, they're majority commercial submissions. And the 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 other labs, uh, and if they have poultry testing, it comes there to the Harrisonburg uh, lab for you there? Yes. Yeah, so one of the labs runs AI testing, but most else comes to us. Um, I, actually, one of our other branch labs does um, salmonella testing as well, because we'll do environmental salmonella testing. Any cool, interesting cases that you've um, seen either during your time at Auburn or um, in Harrisonburg that you'd like to share with us? Now I have to pick one. (laughs) Um, I had a recent one. I'm actually working on writing it up, but it was a farm animal sanctuary that took in, um, they had somehow acquired some commercial broiler breeders. And they were concerned about their weight gain, which, I mean, with the breed, that's kind of to be expected. And so one of the birds in particular was put on a very, um, very strict diet of mostly salad mix. And that salad was majority brassica. Yeah. (laughs) So I got to see... um, Brassica toxicity? Yeah. So very nice, huge, huge thyroids. That's so cool. Yeah, and it's certain plants don't play well with bird species. That's one of them. Mm-hmm. That's so funny. They put the chickens on a diet. Yeah. And so that was a lot of follow up conversations. I ended up recommending they switch to like a game bird maintenance feed since that's a lower energy than most of the poultry feed you can get. Um, but yeah, just, and again, just that well, broccoli, cauliflower, kale, that's all health foods we think to us, but. She was getting about 80% broccoli the last few days before she passed away. So in terms of um, like the thyroid changes, you were, did you see that on Histo? Yes. Um, I mean, it was grossly pretty visible, but on Histo, there was a lot of epithelial hyperplasia and just kind of dysregulated glands. But interestingly enough, they had another bird die of a different cause and submitted it to us after they made the dietary changes. So I got to compare thyroids and it looked much better. It was starting to resolve. So I submitted that a few weeks later. Interesting that it would, you know, the pathology would start to resolve after the the toxicant is removed. I guess that that's 
I guess can be normal. So I guess there's a dose dependent feature there. That's well, I look forward to seeing your case report. Are you going to send that in for avian diseases? Are you going to present it somewhere? I'm I'm hoping to send it in. (laughs) I have it all written except for one section. We need lots of case reports for avian diseases. So send it in, take all your cool cases and then we can all, uh, we can all read it. It's it's really it, the case report part is you know what most uh, I feel like that's what we all you know get to when we get our electronic journals. We want to get down to the case reports. At least mm-hmm. for me, that's the part. I mean, I like the research too, but the case reports is the you know the cool the cool stuff. Oh my gosh, they found this. So eating broccoli, backyard chickens, don't do it. At least not a, a lot. Maybe they can handle a little bit. So there's your tidbit for you know, feeding table scraps to your chickens, make sure it's not 80% broccoli. What, what other, you know, sort of, I feel like a lot of things like this case that you've just talked about is really like a a management issue. And I feel like with small flocks, that is another sort of area that, um, that we see, you know, issues occur is feeding nutrition, water availability, misunderstanding what feed happens when. Um, so how, how do you think that we improve that piece of education? Because I think that that is a little, you know, yeah, as a veterinarian, we're trained for nutrition, maybe for other species. Poultry nutrition is a whole, you know, large thing. So, so how can we improve that education to growers? I'm still trying to figure that out because I mean, a lot of, especially for that, they'll turn to the feed store, they'll look online. And I know as back when I raised backyard birds, the feed store wasn't always the best place to ask for advice. I mean, some folks there knew chickens, some folks there were like, this is my summer job. I have a dog at home. That's all. It has a duck on the front. So you can probably feed it to your chickens too. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, It's good for everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I see that all the good for everything feeds are frustrate me because they're usually good for nobody. Um, yeah, I'm still trying to figure that. I, I mean, as you mentioned, the backyard groups are super organized. So if there was, you know, a way I'm trying to be slow and slowly gain trust and maybe entry into some of those groups, but then disseminating that information to them, maybe having a back and forth conversation. If, cause I see, um, I think there's an online forum, Backyard Chickens, where we'll have information pages so that people can just click on and view those. So I almost think working with the groups that already exist might be the best route. That's a good suggestion. I think that um, there are some you know, resources for our swine animal colleagues, like through AVMA. AVMA has a pretty good section of things kind of compiled for Backyard Fox. Um, what one one sort of hot button topic I see in this in terms of what our our small animal colleagues do is antibiotic use and availability of treatments. Um, how do you think we can expand that education? Because I think sometimes they are using prohibited substances. Um, you know, we have some no nos in food animals, and although it's you know Betty Sue's pet chicken, it still counts as a food animal. So. What what are you, what are your thoughts on that topic? Yeah, that's a, that's a big one. I actually had that discussion yesterday over the phone with my hometown vet and my mother's pet chicken. Who, so 
Um, of course, it's your mother's chicken. They're the ones that always cause the trouble. <laughs> uh-huh. It's our family that wants us to do things for their pets. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I know it was, we had, I don't think we covered these topics really thoroughly in vet school. I did go to. It's not covered very well in most vet school, especially they, they cover all these really in-depth topics of pharmacology and how drugs work. Well, when we get out there, it's you're just injecting it or giving it through the water. And I think that the application of medication administration, that that's that's where we you have to learn that when you're in the job. I would love there to be something like because I I know like my colleagues as we were classmates, like if tidbits of things that sounded clinically relevant, we would like scribble them down and keep them. So even just like a pamphlet like don't use Baytril. Other choices could be, you know. That's a biggie. The Baytril is a biggie. Yeah. And yeah, I like, don't use, let's use that something. Yeah. I think um, the other thing that I see get used is they'll take things that they may commonly use in either exotics or, or pet birds, like a, uh, a pain medication like meloxicam. Without, like, we don't have knowledge of what that does in an egg. And then you need to come up with a withdrawal time. And I think that there's a big a, a piece there in terms of, you know, most people have backyard chickens because they want to eat the eggs. That's that's the whole point. So when you use things, um, you know, we have to, to keep that in mind. So I think we're, you know, I think that there's a, there are definitely practices out there that, that do a good job and have a great understanding and and I think between AAAP and AVMA and our our colleagues that are in uh, diagnostic and extension roles like yourself, I think just having conversations and the more you know CE we can get out in terms of you know either our AAAP small flock groups or you know going to local groups like you have there in Virginia, um, all really important. Keep getting the information out there. Mm-hmm. I know the AAAP I was involved actually we're working on an online course in small animal sort of focused poultry medicine. And still, yeah, we're still working to get that approved by the host university and then see how we can distribute that. But that would um, be great. Yeah. That's a hope. Race approved. Yeah. Colleagues to get their CE. Yes. Yeah. It makes it worth their time. So in terms of, um, Mentoring students, uh, externships, do you host students there at the Harrisonburg Lab or um, how could they get interested in sort of what you do as a career? We do. Right now we are on our, since I started work here, we've had one, two, three, we're on our fourth student. Great. So yeah, and we offer, what we try and do is have them split their time between us and the lab. It's actually, the building is split between the laboratory services and vet services. So. They have an opportunity to not only spend time in the diagnostics, but also go out with inspectors in the field and go out and help with testing. And um, our last group got to go help with palpations and whatnot. So, yeah, we try and make it worth it. Uh, So your lab offers mammalian services also and poultry? Mm -hmm. Okay. So the students, are they majority from um, Virginia, Maryland, or do you have students like is it a rotation through Virginia Maryland or do you do uh externships as well it's I would say it's an elective rotation for the Virginia Maryland um not everyone does it but we have some that choose to but 
I mean, so far this summer, everyone has been from Virginia, Maryland, but I know we applied to be put on the AAAP list for externships, so we'd be glad to host others. Heather, just poultry-focused students. Yes, we need all the opportunities for the poultry people in poultry that we can can keep recruiting more veterinarians. Um, what is one piece of information that you would pass along to a student who's maybe looking into poultry as a career? The one word would be network, um, because it really is uh, reaching out to people. And I know when I was a student, I I still get nervous about reaching out to folks I don't know, but so many being in the field and meeting people, so many are super enthusiastic about helping students out, or even if they can't help a student or take on a student, they can connect them to people who do. And if you don't hear back, it's just because we vets are busy. Um, shoot us another email. Right. And we'll, we'll, <laughs> <Get lost>. um, <laughs> yeah. Don't read too much into delays. No. Or not if, I, if I missed it, it's because like this whole sea of like lab reports comes in and then like, oh, wait, I missed this. Yes. Don't don't be offended. It's not personal. That's pretty funny. I think that happens to all of us, no matter what role we're in is the sea of emails. Um, do you have a, do you have a, like, um, a lot of people, you know, professional development and leadership books, like people have things that they are like, oh, you have to read this and you need to, to do this. Do you have a, a favorite, uh, like leadership book or, um, even like a poultry reference text that you really think that our colleagues that, you know, could benefit from reading? I would love to be able to recommend a leadership book, but actually, if anybody has a recommendation, I'm all ears. Okay. <laughs> You'll have to tune into other episodes of the Poultry Podcast because this is, at least for me as a host, I'll, I'll tend to ask that. There's some book, I know, I know that one's been recommended to me in the past. I'll have to look at the exact title, but it's something about tossing the elephant. Ooh. Um, I'll, find, I'll find the exact title and I'll send it to you. Um, another poultry vet colleague recommended that to me when I was getting started. Um, so it's old by now, but I'll find it. I'll send it. good. Yeah. Yeah. I don't keep the title on the top of my head, but I, I, it was a good read. <clears throat> I personally find a lot of leadership books are like, they just read, talk about the same. I need the Cliff's Notes version because the chapters just seem to just repeat the same themes. So I need like the, I need the TED Talks or you know, I need the, the short and condensed version. Um, and then in terms of, you know, what do you, uh, what do you do for fun? What, what are your hobbies, Haley? I'm an artist. I love to draw. I love to paint. Um, usually it's birds. Uh, I kind of love my job, but like I get to learn the anatomy and that helps inform what I draw. She's being very modest. I've seen her artwork and she can really like illustrate chickens, like kind of at least what I've seen is like pen and ink type of illustrations of chickens. And um, I, I I would love to see you publish a book one day, Haley, that would be like a, you know, an anatomy, but, you know, illustrated. I think that would be fantastic. Just a personal plug for a future book. Thanks. Yeah, so far it's just um, I helped illustrate the euthanasia chapter in the avian disease manual. So, but I would love to do something a little less grim. That's so. Yeah. My yeah. Well, euthanasia is unfortunately a topic that we, you know, we do have to talk about, and um, I think 
illustrating the techniques, you know, I'm sure that's really helpful. I'll look forward to seeing that chapter when it comes out. Um, how did you get involved in that in terms of illustrating that part of the chapter? Oh, that was actually um, during a externship at the PDRC that Dr. Nichols Alford, she's like, will you require people to do like a case report at the end? But I know you're an artist and I'm working on this chapter. So if you want, and I took that <laughs> option. Awesome. Yeah. The um, it, illustrations in terms of, you know, the mechanics of how to do some of these euthanasia techniques, I think it's key. So um, I haven't seen your illustrations yet. So I look forward to when when is that has that chapter been has that published yet i think so yeah it's the eighth okay. edition okay the eighth edition okay so check out haley's illustration there the euthanasia chapter um well i don't have any specific questions is there another topic that you'd like to talk about haley i don't really think so um just start mentioning euthanasia um, that is something I do work with the students here. Like birds, I have already euthanized. I have them practice the like cervical dislocation or things on just because I've seen that done wrong. And I, I mean, yeah, so that's another outreach thing that I think is important. Education on that is, is important. Um, and, and I, I think we as a, a profession have a lot of topics around euthanasia um, and mass depopulation that are important to us as a, as a whole. Um, you know, we actually uh, just yesterday um, and, and sort of this, you know, backyard flock topic and biosecurity, we have a, um, we have a, a high path AI case here in Georgia. It was reported yesterday. Um, so that continues to be a challenge too. So Everybody stay vigilant. The uh, the virus I, seems to really be changing, um, and it's you know staying in wildlife reservoirs a lot longer, not so seasonally like it has been in years past. Hopefully, it stays limited for us, and it's not and it, it's not in a commercial area. So, wish you all the best in managing that. Well, yeah, I, I think the response has been pretty quick. It is a sort of a mixed flock in a like a suburban area. Um, so that that was really, you know, USDA reported uh, the case yesterday. So it does it is a non-commercial. Um, so that's um, hopefully it will stay limited to that. And there's no commercial poultry within the, the surveillance zone. So um, but I. I think that USDA and all of our state animal health um, colleagues have done a really good job educating um, and, and outreach on that to small, small flocks uh, over this outbreak season for 2022. So just another topic that you get to deal with as a diagnostician. Mm -hmm. Well, excellent. Well, I appreciate your time today, Haley. It was really good to catch up and um, good luck as you continue your job there in Harrison Burned and um, enjoy the fall colors in the Shenandoah Valley. It is uh, you're in for a treat. Um, I think uh, I actually heard on the, the news this morning, they were talking about with the drought in a lot of areas that the fall colors are going to happen earlier. So, um, the, but the fall in the Shenandoah Valley is uh, is a treat and, and probably a milder winter than you had in Cornell. Hi. Um, but fingers crossed. You're looking for that. Fingers <laughs> crossed. Yeah, and not quite as hot as Auburn. So you're you're you found maybe the sweet spot there. Um, well, 
The Poultry Podcast Show appreciates you being um, on our episode today, Haley. And if you have any questions, you can um, connect uh, through us and I can get you uh, in touch with Dr. Quircia. And uh, we appreciate your time. Thanks. Thank you so much. <laughs>